Amen, amen. Welcome home. That's so good. Welcome to the last month of your school year. I know some of you guys are probably pretty pumped. You guys all just like smiled and got excited. And it makes me very sad because I'm going to miss you all. Cedar Falls is kind of lonely and boring over the summer, but that's okay because God has done some really cool things this school year. We've seen God move in power. We've got to see you guys get plugged in, and hopefully God has done something in your life. And it's just incredible to get to have a front row seat to what God is doing, not only in your lives, but just in our community as a whole. If this is your first time with us, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor here of Chi Alpha. I would love the opportunity to meet you after service, so come and find me. If not, I'll try to find you. It'll be a fun game we can play. Or you could hide from me. That's the other solution, I guess. But anyways, don't do that. I want to take us on a little bit of a trip we're going to go on a trip back to 2015, which to some of you might seem like forever ago, but to me seems like yesterday because that's when I graduated high school. I was getting ready to move to Minneapolis. That's where I was going to go to college at, North Central University. And when I was getting ready to go to college, 18-year-old Derek made a decision. It was time for a new me. See, in high school, I'm honest, I was kind of a goober. I just like to joke around a lot. My friends and I, who were known as the Chunky Boys, you guys have heard of them if you've been around for a little bit, we were, we were idiots. I love them dearly, but we were hooligans who were pretty self-deprecating, hence the name Chunky Boys, and we were all chunky, except the one scrawny one. But anyways, and this did lead to a lot of laughs and some fun times. Also in that season, my daily attire would be shorts, a t-shirt, and slides with sandals, and that would be my trip to school. And my life was all about an endless pursuit of sports, video games, and food. And then I got ready to move to hip Minneapolis to attend a hip Bible college. So I knew it was time. It was time for young Derek to become cool. So my jeans got skinnier. My hair got higher. My shirts got bigger. Beanies became a regular part of my outfit. And even though I have better than 20-20 vision, glasses became a staple in my life. And here's picture proof of that. Come on. That Snapchat was going to my now wife, Taylor, so clearly it worked. Uh, and I thought my arms were ginormous. I thought I was ripped. Uh, and I thought that beard was really thick, too. I was like, I'm a man. You, you can't see it probably from there, but there's a little bit of peach fuzz up there. <laughs> Anyways, I thought I was so cool. Uh, I was entering a new season. We can take that. Amen. Thank you, Megan. And never look at that again. See, un unfortunate part is when I put pictures up there, people take pictures of them, and then I see them forever. And that's, that's the worst. But anyways, as I was getting ready to enter this new season of college, I knew I wanted to be different. I wanted to be set apart from the old Derek. Because I was preparing for this kind of new land I was getting ready to enter, and I didn't want to enter as the same person. I wanted to be set apart. All of us in here are getting ready to enter into a new season. For some of you, that's a really big transition. Some of you, it'll be a smaller transition. Maybe this is your first summer or your first time in college, and this summer will be your first time going back home. And you've lived on your own for about a year now, and you have to go back to live with mom and dad. And as you will learn quickly, it is an adjustment. Because you're like, wait, I can't just do whatever I want. Mom and dad are there. I used to just be in my dorm and stay up until 4 o'clock in the morning. And now your mom wants to know why. Or maybe this new season is, if you're honest with yourself, you really started following Jesus this year in Chi Alpha. And this will be your first time trying to follow Jesus without having this community surrounding you 24-7. Maybe you've leaned on your Chi Alpha community to stay connected to God. And you're a little bit scared to go home and try to do this on your own. 
This summer is going to be a new season for all of us as we leave the comfort of this community for a few months, and we have to learn to pursue God more on our own. Obviously, we still have each other, and we'll still see each other and talk to each other, and we'll have, we can FaceTime, we'll have a few events over the summer, but let's just be honest, it's going to be a little bit different than it is right now, because we're not all in the same place in the same exact season, but we will still see each other, I hope. Please don't be one of those people who go incognito all summer, and I never get to see you again. Maybe this new season's not that. Maybe the new season you're going to head into is the season of leadership. As you finish up LTC, which is our leadership training class, you're getting ready to embark upon small group leadership for Chi Alpha in the fall, and if you're honest, you're a little scared. You don't think you have what it takes. You've never led anything before, but you're trusting God and stepping into this new season anyway. Or some of you have even bigger transition coming. Maybe this is your last month of college. McGuire's like, amen, thank God. Uh, we'll miss McGuire so much. I'm going to cry during his senior speech, which will start next week, so be here. Anyways, you're getting ready to graduate. Maybe you're going to move from Cedar Falls, and you're ready to step fully into adulthood. This new season's right in front of you, and if you're honest, you're a little scared. There's probably some excitement, but you just don't know because it's so unknown. There are some even more new seasons for some of us. Some people are going to get engaged this summer. Some people are going to get married this summer. Maybe it'll be simple as you're going to move off campus this, or this next school year. You're going to get new roommates. Maybe it'll be joining a new small group, becoming an upperclassman. No matter where you're at, there is some kind of transition that's going to happen in your life in a month. The 2021-2022 Chi Alpha year, our this family, will not look the same. It's coming to a close, and we're looking to new horizons. We're entering, really, a new land. And as we enter this season, we might be asking, well, what now? This week, we're starting our final sermon series of the school year, entitled, A Life Worth Emulating. We all have a desire to be great. We all have a desire to make a difference. Something I love about this generation is we don't just want to sit by and watch life pass us by, but we want to see the world get better. But how do we do that? To answer this question, we are going to examine different Old Testament characters and how we can learn from their lives to learn how to live a life worth emulating. Emulate just means to learn from, to imitate, to copy. Tonight, we're going to look at the life of Joshua and see what can we copy or, imitate or emulate from him. Just to give you some context, Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible. The Old Testament is all about the Israelite people, also known as the Jewish people. This people, this nation, actually descends from one guy named Abraham. God promised this guy Abraham that he was going to make him the father of many nations and many people, and he would give him and his family this promised land. And then a lot of stuff goes down, and eventually Abraham's family, which again, they're known as the Israelites, remember that, this family is the Israelites, kind of God's chosen people, all synonymous. This people become slaves in Egypt. Then many years after Abraham is long gone, this leader named Moses rises up, and he actually leads the Israelites out of captivity, out of Egypt, in this event known as Exodus. After the Exodus, Moses and God's people, they wander around the desert for 40 years, waiting to get to this promised land. The reason it took so long was not because it was a 40-year journey. I think it could have been done in like 40 days, if I remember correctly. No, it's because the Israelites kept disobeying God, and they kept not getting into the promised land because of their own sinfulness and disobedience. And as Moses, this leader who's leading the Israelites, is getting ready to die, God reveals to him that actually Moses, your successor, is going to lead your people to the promised land. And this successor is Joshua. So Moses dies. Joshua's appointed as the next leader of, the, of God's people, and he's charged with taking the Israelites into the promised land. That's where we're going to start our story tonight. Before we jump in, let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you for this opportunity to gather together and just learn from the scripture, God, and to learn from you. We love you so much, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. So God charges Joshua to take his people into the promised land. But before they can enter... 
Joshua gathers the people and he says something profound on behalf of God. In Joshua 3, 5, it says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. The first point tonight is as we enter a new land, we must be consecrated. As we enter a new land, we must be consecrated. Taylor and I, which is again my wife, we love to travel. I also, though, love routine, which is kind of those things sometimes go together. But what that means is that when we travel, I have a very set routine. One part of this routine is we always take our vacation over our anniversary. So every year around July 9th, Taylor and I go somewhere, just the two of us. But more specifically, I have a specific routine with what I wear when we travel. Every single time we're traveling, specifically when we go on an airplane for our anniversary trip, I wear this soft red shirt that we got from our old church called Cross Point Church in Waverly. This shirt is very comfortable and it's tradition, so I have to keep doing it. I wear the shirt, black shorts, and my fake Burks. That is vacation, Derek, and my hair is like going the other way, and that's when I know I'm in peak condition right there. The embarrassing part of this tradition, though, is Taylor also has the same tradition. She wears the same shirt when we go on a travel, and it's the exact same shirt that I wear when we go and travel. So every time we go on a vacation, we're matching. People often ask us, like, oh, are you guys a part of a group? Are you going on a mission trip to expand the kingdom of God? No, we're going on a selfish trip, okay? Thank you for making us feel bad. And we're both just too stubborn. We don't want to change our tradition. I want to wear the shirt. She wants to wear the shirt. So we match and look ridiculous every year on our vacation. (laughs) We're so stubborn anyways. But this shirt is set apart for a specific use. It has a very unique and special role in my life. I don't actually wear it any other time. I only wear it when I'm on an airplane on the way to the vacation, not on the way back. I have a different shirt for that. It's a blue striped shirt that has a hole right here. But anyways, (laughs) that first shirt being set apart for just vacation is what makes that shirt special to me. The word consecrate is just a fancy word that means set apart. In this context, in the biblical narrative, it specifically means to be set apart to be used by God. So Joshua is telling his people, he's saying, hey, I know what is about to happen is crazy. I know we're a little scared to go into this promised land. But I know God's about to do something awesome. So we must be set apart for a special use. We must be different than the world around us. We have to commit to being used by God, just like my vacation shirt is set apart for a special use. As we are getting ready to enter new lands of life like the Israelites were, whether that new land be graduation, summer on your own, a new job, marriage, leadership, etc., we need to commit to being consecrated or set apart to God. This is the first step on our journey tonight is consecration. This is going to be fun. I'm really excited to show you my little map. But anyways, I I just spoiled it. It's a map. Anyways, sorry. If we are not set apart, God cannot use us in the same way. Our special calling in life requires a special work on our end of getting our hearts ready to be used by God. The first time that God instructs his people to be consecrated is actually in the book of Exodus, a few, few books before Joshua, and it's when God tells Moses, so again, who's the guy who's in charge before Joshua, he says, consecrate the people, and what they practically do in that setting is they like, do a washing of themselves, and they were abstain from sexual immorality. They cleanse themselves to be set apart, and that's how we set ourselves apart today is we cleanse ourselves through our lifestyles, through being different than the world around us. The main way that Joshua and his people do this is the main way they're different than the world around them is by choosing who they rely on. See, the world, especially today, but also back in that day, people of the world, we rely on ourselves, right? I forge my own destiny. If I just work hard enough, I can accomplish anything. I can live the American dream. But as we see from the story of Joshua, 
God doesn't actually ask us to rely on our own strength. He doesn't ask us to rely on our own will to accomplish things for him. No, God provides a better way. He provides a consecrated or a set-apart way forward. Let's fast forward in our story. So Joshua takes his people. They, God parts the sea, and they enter into this new land. And as they enter this new land, also known as the promised land, there's people already living there. And they've occupied the promised land. And God tells them to destroy your enemies. This might seem a little weird, right? When we read things in the Old Testament, like, what do you mean? Like, they're supposed to, like, kill them? That seems different than Jesus. This is weird. And we get our minds running, right? We wonder why. Well, there's actually two big reasons why God tells Joshua and his people to destroy the people who are in the promised land. The people who are living in the promised land are also known as the Canaanites. They were extremely morally corrupt, They had some very weird and evil sexual practices that you can read about earlier in Scripture. And God did not want God's people and the Canaanites to intermingle because he knew that would be a bad influence. He knew his people weren't that strong and that if these bad influences of a lot of evil practices were near them, that they would run from God. So he had to remove them from this land. He had to push them away. And it wasn't genocide. If you look at the context, it's not like he actually killed every one of them, but that's a separate side note. But he removes them from this land because he knows it's going to be a bad influence on his chosen people. And he didn't want them to pick up on this moral corruption. The second reason is the Canaanites, the people that were occupying the promised land, they practiced child sacrifice. Which is clearly a very evil thing that God wanted purged from the world. So he tells Joshua, go and conquer those people because they're doing something very evil. Take your land back. Purge evil from my land. So Joshua and his people, they get to their first enemy. And this first enemy, the first thing they come upon is a city. This is the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho would have been a really powerful city at this time. It's actually, I think, the oldest known city in the history of the world, fun fact. And it has a big wall around it, which means it was a pretty hard place to conquer. It's like, all right, we're starting off strong. We're coming for the big city with the wall. We'll see how this goes. So Joshua approaches Jericho, and he's like, all right, God, give me a plan. I just imagine him, he's like, God's about to download some awesome military strategy. He's going to like invent the first excavators. I go underneath and like blow them up from underneath or something. Joshua, I just feel like he's like, God, you're about to blow my stinking mind. And then this is the mind-blowing strategy that God gives him. Joshua 6, 1 through 5 says this. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, listen to this wonderful plan. See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets, seven guns, seven swords, no, seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall do a big military, oh, nope, nope. You shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast of the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. Oh, that's a nice idea, God. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up. Everyone straight before him. Wow, what a plan, God. Thank you. Imagine this. Imagine you're on a football team, and you're the quarterback. And the head coach calls a timeout and says, and you're on offense, says, come over here, offense. He's like, I got a game plan. This is what we're going to do. On first, second, and third down, you're going to hike it, and then just lay down. That's it. He says, but on fourth down, he's like, hoo, 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 I got a plan for fourth down. And you're going to hike it. And then after, I, I just imagine the team, they're like, ha, 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 coach is about to be awesome. This is going to blow my mind again. They're like Joshua. And they're really excited because they're like, coach is about to go nuts with an awesome play. He says, you're going to hike it. You're going to take a step back. And then you're going to yell really loud at the defense. 
You're going to scream at them, and then they're all going to fall down, and you'll be able to run for a touchdown. We'll win the game. We'll have a party at Pizza Hut. It's going to be awesome. I imagine if that happened, we would be like, well, coach, you're mentally insane. It's time for you to be fired. Or it would be my favorite football team, the Commanders, because they're terrible. But anyways, no one even knows who the Commanders are. Well, I'll keep going. Hey, you got to clap. Thank you, Theodore. <laughs> that analogy of the football team pretty much sums up God's plan to Joshua. The God who created the universe, his best plan was to yell at them. This strategy makes no sense, but I love the way Joshua responds. He's obedient. He trusts God, even though God's plan makes no earthly sense. It may not seem logical to us, but to Joshua, this plan was perfectly logical because it came from God. And he knew if God tells me to do something, he's smarter than I am, so I'm going to listen to him. It has to be the best way forward. Joshua is showing us that we need to rely on God even when it doesn't make sense. Too often we hear from God something, and then we like crunch the numbers. We see, does this financially make sense? Does this play into my life insurance? Does this fit into my two-year plan so I can graduate on time? Am I ready? Do we do all the math? Like, does this all check out, God? Does this work with my head? And if so, like, yes, we'll do it, God. But if it doesn't check out with our entire plan or make mathematical or earthly sense, then we're like, ah, I'm not going to trust you and rely on you, God. But that's not the way it's supposed to work. We can use earthly strategy, it's not wrong, unless it goes against what we've heard from God. Because if God tells you to do something, you have to rely on him and do it, even if it doesn't make sense. Because if we follow God, we probably think God's smarter than us, and so his logic must be more sound than our own logical reasoning. Joshua was also persistent in his obedience. They did what God commanded them. I feel like on the seventh day, Joshua may have been a little bit over it, right? He's like, okay, I've crossed. We've walked around this stupid city six days in a row. I feel like an idiot. He's probably like, I just took over. I've been in charge for like two weeks, and you're telling me to walk around a city. They're not going to respect me after this if this doesn't fall down. I imagine him having a little bit of concerns of looking like an idiot to his new family and his new army, but he decides to trust God anyways, no matter what he looks like. And then this happens in Joshua 6.20. The people shouted, and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. The walls came tumbling down. Because Joshua was persistent in obedience and relied upon the voice of God over the worlds. Because he didn't let ungodly people's opinion of him trump God's opinion of him. Because he didn't let what the world and people who don't even believe in God dictate his actions because he didn't care what he looked like in front of people. I think we need to hear that today because he didn't care what he looked like in front of people. They captured the city that they had no business capturing. I think some of us care way more about what the people around us think of us than what the God of the universe thinks of us, which is not logical. Because they did that, they conquered Jericho. The lesson from this story is that God will deliver. God will fight his battles and our battles. Our job is not to fight, but to trust him and to wait on him. We don't have to figure everything out. All we have to do is say, yes, sir. So Joshua and his people, they conquer Jericho, and they're feeling pretty good. Like, if we can do that with a shout, imagine what we can do with our real army. So then they feel so good, in fact, they're like, we're about to go conquer another place. So they jump right in, they're like, we got our next attack planned, and they go and attack the city of Ai, and they lose. They get embarrassed. 
from, they only send a third of their army because they're so confident in themselves. They go up there and they lose. And they're like, why, God? I thought you were on our side. We just took out the big city. Now this other city, why isn't this working? See, the problem is, is when they're at Jericho, Joshua and his people relied on God's voice. But when they went to Ai, they trusted their own strength. They didn't wait to hear from God. They didn't ask God, should we attack this city? No, they just went for it. Plus, they were not consecrated in their obedience, meaning when God told them to conquer Jericho, he gave them a set of commands to do, and one guy didn't listen. One person screwed it up for everyone because he was disobedient to God. They were not fully set apart. They were not fully reliant on God. And even though the second battle, they had logic and the odds on their side, they lost because they did not trust God and wait for his timing. They tried to force their own will. Too often we're not patient enough to get good gifts from God because we try to force things in what we think is best and try to make things work on our own timing. And then God's like, if you just would have waited another two days, I could have given you the keys of the kingdom. We need to be patient and trust God. See, this all goes down to who do we rely on. To be consecrated, we must rely or must be reliant upon God. To be consecrated, we must be reliant upon God. This is what will set us apart from the world. The world, or just the people around us who don't follow God, they rely on their own strength. But we're called to rely on God and to be obedient even when it doesn't make sense. Which leads to the next step of our journey, which goes from consecration to reliance. See that little map? There's some little lines there. Casey made that, and I was pretty pumped about it anyways. So practically, this looks like not making decisions based on our own brains. The downfall at AI had to do with Joshua not seeking the Lord's wisdom. As you enter into a new season in life, we must ask God for wisdom and rely on what he says to do. When we make decisions, whose opinion matters most to us? We must be a people that prays for wisdom from the Lord. We need to ask God, what do I do? What is your will? We cannot afford to make decisions without guidance from God. Sometimes God actually lets us choose. We ask him and he says, I don't really care. That, I know that seems crazy, right? Sometimes God lets you pick things. And if that happens, great. Pick whatever you want and go with it. But sometimes God gives us clear direction and we have to follow it. God is actually always giving us clear direction through the Bible. We have to read it to find out what that direction is, though. So God might be asking you to do something that doesn't make sense to you. Maybe it doesn't make sense to your friends, your family. But if you truly listen and hear from God, which means don't, like, avoid godly counsel. Don't say, I heard from God, I'm good, I'm going to go do it. Like, ask some people if it's crazy. Because sometimes we hear incorrectly from the Lord, right? We're not perfect. We're not perfect listeners. But if we're confident that we hear from God, we need to be obedient. And the only way we'll hear from God is if we spend time with him. If we make room for him to speak in our lives, if we silence our souls to hear from God, just like we talked about in the prayer series, we must be people of prayer. But if we think we've gotten direction from God, we've got a few things to do. We need to ask ourselves, first of all, is this biblical? God's never going to tell you to do something that doesn't align with Scripture. For example, if you feel like God is telling you to go steal a car, that's not from Jesus. That's from your own head. You made that voice of the Lord up because God's not going to ask you to sin. But if what he's, do, or what he's asking you to do aligns with Scripture and aligns with the heart of Jesus, you have to know the person of Jesus to know his heart. And that means, is it something that's loving? Is it self-sacrificial? Is it beneficial for the kingdom of God? If those things are all true, then we need to pursue it because it would be illogical to not listen to the God who created the universe. Because when Joshua relied on his own strength, he failed. But when he relied on the crazy plans of God, he won. Consecration means we rely on God. But to truly rely on God, we must obey him. I want you to imagine that you have a trainer. This trainer could be for a sport. It could be for like lifting. It could be for dance. It could be a trainer for school. It could be a trainer on dating. I don't care what your trainer's for. Whatever you want to grow in, this trainer's here to help you. 
And this trainer starts off your time together by showing you like film of why they're an expert. So let's say you're trying to learn how to, you need a trainer in basketball, they show you their game tape. And they're the best at it. They're the best you've ever seen do this activity. And then they ask you, do you trust me? Do you trust that I know what's best and how to get you there? And after you've seen them be really, really good at the thing you're wanting to grow in, you respond, of course I trust you. Please just teach me how to be great like you. And then this trainer gives you a full plan, exactly step-by-step what to do to achieve your goal. Whatever your goal is in life, they tell you exactly what to do, when to do it, and how to live. They say, if you rely on me, you do not have to figure it out on your own. You don't need to search for the answers. I have the complete answer book right here. If you do this step one through 10, you will achieve your goal. Well, they know you relied on them because you showed up to this training session. No. Well, they know you relied on them because you said you trusted them. No. They won't know you trusted and relied on them until you actually follow the directions they gave you, until you listen to them. Let's jump forward in Joshua's story. Let's get to the end of his life. So after Ai and that embarrassing defeat, they end up actually beating that city. And then Joshua and his people proceed to conquer pretty much the entire promised land. God comes through on his end and leads them to victory. And they get the promise of God. And then as Joshua is getting ready to pass away and to depart from this world, he gives a final charge to his people. And he says this in Joshua 23. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. They may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you... But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you've done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it's the Lord who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer Drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you. What's Joshua telling his people? He's telling his people in this final sermon is he's saying, cling to the Lord through obeying him, through listening to the law. Clinging to something shows you trusted because you're fully like reliant on it. For example, there's this pole and you're clinging to it. If it falls, you're going tumbling down with it. But you're trusting, you're putting all your weight on something. And Joshua wants his people to fully trust the Lord, which is our next step in our journey, is trust. However, Joshua knows that just saying you trust God is not enough. True trust or reliance is not actually shown in words, but in action, in keeping the laws that God has given them. So we go to the next step already from trust to obedience. So consecration takes us to reliance, which takes us to trust, which lands at obedience. To truly consecrate ourselves, to truly be set apart for God, we must rely on God enough to obey him, as we see in verse 7. If we trust God, we'll trust that he is Lord and he is smarter than us. Not being obedient is sin. Sin is just missing the mark, not being aligned with what God's asked us to do. It's not living the way God designed us to. And there's actually two types of sin, sins of omission and sins of commission. Sins of omission is when we know there's something we're supposed to do, but we fail to do it. This is when God gives you a direction in your life. God tells you to do something and we don't do it. I think some of us tonight are hearing from the Lord some sort of direction on our life as we enter this new land, as we enter this new season. We feel like we're hearing from God what to do, but we're failing to obey him. Or maybe we're not hearing from him because we're not opening up the Bible and sitting before him and praying. 
But either way, we're failing to obey him. And God's asking you to trust him enough to trust his plan, even though it doesn't make sense to you. God is saying, will you just walk around the walls of Jericho and see what happens? Maybe this looks like taking a certain job, even if it pays less. Maybe it looks like inviting someone to Chi Alpha, even though it makes you feel uncomfortable. Maybe it looks like breaking off a certain relationship, even though they feel like your security blanket. Maybe it looks like talking to someone about Jesus, even though you've never done that before. Maybe it looks like stepping into a certain role in your life or stepping into a leadership position. There's something that God has asked you to do and you're failing to do it. That is disobedience. Also, delayed obedience is still disobedient. We have to obey God as soon as we get direction from him. Sin's not just doing the wrong things. Sin is also failing to do the right things. But the other type of sin is the sins of commission. And this is what we usually think of when we think of sin. Things like anger, deceit, sexual immorality, drunkenness, partying, those things. Maybe there's an addiction in your life, a heart posture, maybe some bitterness. There's some stronghold in your life that God is telling you to stop doing that. Trust God enough to obey him and to run from your sin. We must trust that God is good enough to not only be our saviors, but to also be our entertainment, to be our joy, to be our fulfillment. If God's only good enough to pay for our sins, but God, not good enough to be our fun on a Friday night, then we're not giving God everything. Trust means you don't think you need the things of the world. It means you don't think you don't need to do the same things that all the other colleges are doing in order to live a life of meaning. Because you truly trust God to be enough for you. God doesn't just want to be your savior. He wants to be your Lord. He wants to be your king. So whether this is a sin of omission or commission, we have to be obedient to God because obedience shows we rely on him. It shows we're consecrated to him. We're set apart. And when we are set apart, we can be used by God. And as we obey Jesus, we start to live a life in the kingdom, which is our next step. We start to live this kingdom life. See, a common misconception is that God gives us direction or a way to live, and when he does that, it's just like a list of rules that if we don't obey, if we don't obey God's rules, he'll be mad at us, and he'll smite us. But that's not what Jesus teaches at all. Let's go back to this idea of having a trainer. So let's say this trainer gives you the keys to how to live. They give you exact direction on how to accomplish your goals. If you don't listen to them, will they be mad at you? Will it actually affect their life? Not really. You're still paying them. Their life's not impacted by your obedience or disobedience to him because they're still an expert in the, in the field. Why would the trainer be mad at you or want to punish you for not listening to them? They won't be mad, but they'll be sad. They'll be disappointed not in you, but for you because the trainer knows that if you listen to them, you'll get where you want to go. The trainer knows that you're not living life the way you want to. The trainer knows that they have all the answers, so they're going to be sad if you don't trust them enough to listen because they know if you just trusted them and obeyed the things they told you to do, your life would be better. When Jesus gives us direction of things to do or not to do, he's not saying obey me or I'll be mad at you or punish you because sin's its own punishment. No one lives a sinful lifestyle and truly feels good about it long term. I promise you that. So Jesus, instead of being mad at us, he's actually just asking us this simple question, saying, do you actually trust me? When Jesus describes how we should live life, He's not just describing the most holy lifestyle. He's actually describing the best lifestyle. The lifestyle that will lead to the most fulfillment. Jesus' way is not just holy, it's also correct. 
Living in what Jesus calls the kingdom of God is living the way that we are designed to because God designed us. So if he gives us a playbook on how to live, clearly it is the best way to live because it's from the creator himself. E. Stanley Jones has a whole book on this idea. This book is probably the best book I've read this year, so I highly recommend you read it. It's called The Unshakable Kingdom and the Unchanging Person. And in this book he says, when we obey the laws of the kingdom, we obey the laws of our own beings. Jones' argument throughout the book is that when we live in the kingdom or when we live the way of Jesus, we're living the way we were designed. We're actually going with the grain of the universe because when, we live the, when things work the way they're supposed to, they work well, right? But on the flip side, I think sometimes when life's not going the way we want it to, we get mad at God and we say, Jesus, why isn't you say, I want joy, but my life's not joyful. I'm trying to hear from you, but I'm not hearing from you. This isn't working. Why is my life not the way I want it to? And Jesus is going to say to us, well, are you listening to my playbook I gave you? Because it's not very fair of us to get mad at God for life not being the way we want it to when we're not actually doing life the way he said to do it. Because Jesus promises us if we live life the way that he's commanded us to, fully sold out for God, we will have a life not of perfection, but a life of joy. But it doesn't make sense to me. Like, if you be mad at like, the trainer, let's say you're doing it for lifting, and you don't get ripped but you also didn't do anything they asked of you and you ate McDonald's every day and never lifted and you're like, why am I not buff? That doesn't make any sense to us, right? So why can we get mad at God when our lives aren't the way we want them to and we're not actually obeying him and living the life the way that he said you are designed to live? Now that's not logical because it goes back to this idea that God's laws are not motivation for obedience but descriptions of reality from an infinite perspective. This is a fancy way of saying that we don't just obey God because it's the right thing to do. We obey God because it's the smart thing to do. Because God's smarter than us. He's describing how reality should be from an infinite perspective because he designed reality. When Jesus instructs us on how to live, he's not just giving us a moral code that if we don't follow, he's going to smite us. No, he's giving us a roadmap on how we should live. So God's not mad at us when we don't live in the kingdom, but he's sad for us because he knows the kingdom is the best way to live. He's giving us a roadmap to how to live a life of purpose and joy. Jones puts it this way. When I am in this kingdom, I don't try hard to be happy. I just am happy. There's more joy to the square inch in being a Christian than there is the square mile in being a non-Christian. It is pure unalloyed joy with no hangover from it. This does not mean life's going to be perfect. Jesus promises us a way of persecution and trial. But what Jesus promises us that amidst the hard situations of life, we'll still have joy. When we live life in the way of the world, our happiness and our fulfillment is dictated by our surroundings. When we live life in the way of the kingdom, our happiness and joy is in spite of our surroundings because we have hope in who Jesus is. However, this joy that Jones talks about takes more than just saying you're a Jesus follower. It means actually living like it. So just saying you're a Christian and coming to Chi Alpha on Tuesday nights is not living life in the kingdom. I'm thankful you're here. I'm very glad you're here. But that's not living the way Jesus told us to. We actually have to live the way Jesus prescribes us, being obedient to his playbook on life. And if we do that and we obey him, we'll find his kingdom and we'll find joy. So if you're living a life where you don't feel like there's a lot of joy, I ask you to, to measure, am I actually living life the way Jesus told me to? But as we live life in the kingdom, and again, life's not going to be perfect, I know there's things that happen. I know there's medical things, right? There's depression. There's things like that. I'm not arguing against that whatsoever. But what I'm saying, though, is if we follow the kingdom of God in his way, in general, 
life's going to have some joy to it because we have a purpose and a meaning. Not perfect. Hear me. Life as a Jesus follower is not perfect. There's sad things that happen. But if we live life in the kingdom, we will live a life worth emulating, which is our destination. What does this mean? A life worth emulating means we'll not only live a life of personal fulfillment, but also a life that others want to live. The only way for this to be true is to live a life that makes an impact. Let's go back to Joshua. Joshua was consecrated to God. He relied on God, which meant that he trusted God, which meant that he obeyed God. And as he obeyed him, his life looked like the kingdom on earth. And as he did all these things, he was set apart for God, and he made a huge impact. Joshua got to lead his people to the promised land. He got to inherit the land. He got to inherit the promises of God over his life. And he got to live a world-changing life where God moved through him. I like to picture Joshua at the end of his days, looking at the promised land, saying, wow, God, you're so good. Has this journey been perfect? Far from it. But wow, God, you're good. If we want to live a life worth emulating, a life where God works in us and through us, we have to cling to God. We need to set ourselves apart for God and trust him enough to obey him. See, I believe there's some people in here tonight that were tightly holding something from God. We're holding on to a dream, a relationship, a sin, a fear that God has asked us to give him. We're called to be obedient to Jesus and to trust him enough that his way is the best way and to be fully sold out for God. Because God does not want 99% of you. He wants the whole thing. If we don't give God everything in our life, he can't do his full work in us because you're not fully reliant upon him. God's not going to force you to let him drive the car of your life. You have to get out of the driver's seat and open the door and say, come in, Jesus. Because Jesus isn't someone who's going to force himself upon us. And that takes reliance. That takes trust in the goodness of Jesus. But as we enter in these new seasons of life, we want to live a life worth emulating, right? We want to not only live a life of joy, but also live a life that makes an impact. The main idea tonight is to live a life worth emulating, we must be set apart for God. To live a life worth emulating, we must be set apart for God. In order to live a life that's set apart or consecrated to God, we have to go back to our roadmap. We must start with consecration, and consecration is going to lead to reliance. And reliance will lead us to trust in God, and trust will be shown through obedience. Trust is not shown through our words, it's shown through our actions. And as we obey Jesus, we will live a life in his kingdom. And as we do that, we'll live a life worth emulating. Hear me. Trusting God is very, very hard sometimes. I get it. I know you're sitting here thinking, but Derek, you just don't get it. You don't know the situation I'm going through. And I'm sorry if there's some situation in your life that's very like, sad or very hard or oppressive. And I really am. I mean that. And I'm not saying that this is going to make your life perfect. But I'm saying that although trusting God is hard, it's worth it. But hear me, it is hard. If you remember at the beginning of our time together tonight, I showed you a picture of me as a freshman in college. What you may not know is that picture of me was from a fall retreat in Minnesota. Just a few weeks before that picture, my life had been completely turned upside down. A few weeks before that, I came to a Kyle Fall Retreat in Iowa. I went to two Fall Retreats that year. That's pretty cool. And at that Fall Retreat, I met Taylor. And I also think I met the real Jesus for the first time. Also in that season, I felt a deep burden for college students. That's when I felt called to do Chi Alpha with my life. So at that season of my life, I was going to Bible college. 
which is like college to learn how to be a pastor, and I now felt called to be a pastor. Perfect. That's a great coincidence. I'm already here. This is going to be the easiest transition in the world, just changing majors. The problem was, though, I felt like God had called me to move here, to you and I. In case you're wondering, there's no pastoral degree here at you and I. He was calling me to leave pastor's college to become a pastor. That didn't quite add up in my brain. To make it worse, I felt called to come here, you and I, and now that I, I love you and I, but if I'm honest, you guys, as a senior in high school, I did not like you and I very much. I was actually a finalist for a full-ride scholarship here, you and I, and to show up, you and I, and to stick it to him, I skipped the interview because I thought I was a rebel and I was cool. <laughs> awesome. Good job, Derek. You're called to go to the place. You told him to shove it. God's funny. So, this season I feel called to go to you and I. I talked to some godly counsel in my life. I weighed what I thought I'd heard from Scripture and what I thought I'd heard from God. And actually, God, through a divine thing, pointed me to the book of Nehemiah, which is a story we're going to get to the last week of the year. And anyways, through that story, I knew that I was to, to come to you and I. I'm so thankful that I was obedient to Jesus. Because I was obedient to God, even though it made absolutely no sense to anyone, even though it felt like walking around a city seven times and just yelling, because I was willing to be obedient, even though I was very sinful, I got to marry my best friend in the world. I get to have the coolest job on the planet. I get to spend time with you guys every day. And you are truly my favorite people in the world. You might think, oh, he's just saying that because he's up there. Ask anyone. I tell everyone I've got the coolest job in the world. I actually got into a fight once with a different pastor about whose job was cooler. He said, my job's the best. I said, no, my job's the best. Funny thing, that pastor is actually Keziah's dad. But anyways, I was asking him for money. And then I said, but I've got the cooler job. I tell everyone I've got the best job in the world because I mean it. Life's been far from perfect, but I'm beyond thankful that God called me here to this season of life. But in order to get to this season of life, and I'm honest, this season's full of joy. In order to get here, though, it did take a step of obedience. It took me trusting God's ways over conventional wisdom. It took a whole lot of reliance. It took being set apart or different from the expectations of the world. That's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus is the one person we can fully rely on. See, Joshua, he couldn't fully rely on himself because when he did that, he lost. Joshua wasn't good enough to create his own way. Joshua wasn't good enough to create his own salvation. He needed something more. And that's where Jesus comes in. When we get to a place where we're at the end of ourselves, when we've tried everything the world has to offer, when we feel empty and we want something more, we have Jesus to look to. Not only does Jesus provide us the best way to live, also known as the kingdom of God, he gives us the only way to live for eternity. And Jesus did this through living the perfect kingdom life dying for us so when we eventually screw up and we will because Jesus gives us this path of life and we're going to veer off this path but Jesus knew that and since he knew that what he decided to do was to create a bridge for us to get back on path that bridge is what we're getting ready to celebrate this weekend with the death and resurrection of King Jesus the only person who's perfect the only person who did not deserve to die for their sins died for our sins and that story is pretty cool because of that, we can rely on him because he's trustworthy. We have to ask ourselves, do we 
trust God enough to do what he tells us to do. You're probably getting ready to head into a new season in life. And God's asking you, do you trust me? He's saying, will you be obedient? Will you actually do the right things? Will you spend time with Jesus? Will you open yourself up to hear from him so you can have direction? God's asking us, will you let go of the sin in your life and obey him no matter what he asks you, no matter what he asks you to get rid of? Is God worth it to you? And if you say yes, if you give it to God and rely on him, I promise you will not regret it. Like I said earlier, I love the picture of Joshua getting ready to die. Saying, wow, I'm so glad I relied on God. And I want when you get to the end of your life that you're not regretful of all the decisions you made on your own strength, but I want you to be like, wow, God did some pretty cool things even though I mess up a lot. That's a life worth emulating, a life with complete reliance on God. If you're here tonight, and as you look to this new season of life, if you're a little worried, I get it. I'm a little worried about this next season too. But I'm also so excited. See, we as Chi Alpha, we're also heading into a new season. That's the beauty of college ministries. Every year is a fresh start. And I think God's preparing our hearts for this summer. I think God's preparing us as we look to the next school year. Not that this year is done, but as we look to next year, I think God wants to do some powerful things in this community. I fully believe that God wants to bring a revival to our campus, meaning he wants to see hundreds and hundreds of students worshiping King Jesus. The question he's asking us, though, is, Chi Alpha, will you rely on me? Because on our own, we are not good enough to fill this auditorium with students worshiping Jesus. Look around. There's some seats empty, right? There's a whole balcony. During COVID, I had to preach to them. It was kind of challenging, but anyways... We want to see these students, because every seat represents a student who does not know the name of God. And I want to see them filled, not because of our own strength, but because of the goodness of King Jesus. So if we will be willing to rely on Jesus, if we're willing to pray like it's no one's business, if we're willing to prioritize his presence, and if we're willing to walk around the walls of Jericho as many times as he asks us, then the spiritual strongholds, not only in your life, but the spiritual strongholds on this campus, the spiritual strongholds for that senior in high school who doesn't know what God's about to do in their lives, those strongholds will come tumbling down as we see Jesus move in power on our campus, as he spreads his kingdom and a group of students rises up who live lives that are worth emulating. Will you all stand with me? We like to give some opportunities to respond here at Chi Alpha. And the first way we want to, first opportunity we want to give you is if you're here tonight, and if you're honest, you've never really fully trusted Jesus. You've never went in with Jesus. You've been trying to do life on your own. Maybe you once followed God and you've stopped, or maybe you've never called Jesus King. We want to give you an opportunity to change that tonight and to call Jesus Lord. So if everyone will close your eyes, bow your heads. What I'm going to do is I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, if you want to make Jesus Lord and receive his forgiveness of sins, receive the sacrifice he made, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, not as a sign to me, but as a sign to God, an outward sign that you're all in. So that's you. Count of three, raise your hand. One, two, three. Thank you. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace, Jesus. Thank you for your grace, God. Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for the sacrifice. Amen. And the second way I want us to respond tonight is if you're here and you're honest, you don't feel like you're living a life worth emulating. It's It's just not quite where you want it to be. Not full of joy, not full of purpose. I want to give you an opportunity to respond to God. So as we worship, 
I want you to explore and actually think in your heart. So if you can't sing because you're thinking, that's okay. But spend some time thinking, is there something that I'm not obeying Jesus? Is there something I'm not relying upon God in? And we're going to have our response teams come forward. And actually, I'd like our staff team to come forward as well. And if there's something that you want to, whether it's a sin you want to confess or a way you want to rely on God, I'm going to challenge you to go and tell someone about it. To go tell them, hey, this is the thing that I'm not relying on God, and I want you to help me rely on God. Or maybe this is a sin I need to confess. This is something God's asked me to do. Because sometimes we need to, we get really excited in these moments, like, yes, I'm going to rely on God. And then we get out of the heebie-jeebie fields, and we don't want to do it as much, which I get, been there. So if we have someone that knows what we're going through, that can be a little helpful. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, thank you for your goodness, God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you're a God worth relying on. Thank you that you're faithful, Jesus. We love you so much. Amen.